Welcome to episode 16 of Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond in association with Discover Science and Engineering. You can catch up with Cybernia podcasts through our website, cybernia.ie, follow us on twitter.com forward slash cybernia and find us at facebook.com slash cybernia. So what's faster than the speed of light? We talk about the potentially groundbreaking new discovery that could bring us up to warp speed. We also look at the science of the rogue wave, a mysterious phenomenon blamed for the disappearance of several ships. Now we talk to Professor Denny of NUI Galway about CERN's operating neutrino experiment, which has observed subatomic particles travelling faster than the speed of light. He tells us why this could be a game changer for physics as we know it. Um, what does this observation at CERN mean and is it conclusive proof of particles faster than the speed of light? Okay, well, I'll probably start by telling you what it is um, they're doing, what has been reported, and what all the fuss is about. So, uh, in the last few days, some very interesting news came from CERN in Geneva. Now, CERN is the top nuclear physics institute in Europe. Um, it's uh, underneath the Alps um, in some huge tunnels. Um, it really sounds like Bond movie stuff, but it's, it's yeah. really there. I, I've been there, it's pretty remarkable. Um, you would have heard of its name from things like the Large Hadron Collider and uh, the fact that it's, it's, it's a small task of inventing the World Wide Web. So, a few days ago, um, a scientific paper, a preprint, uh, was published on the internet. And uh, this is kind of the new practice whereby scientists uh, put their work out so that other scientists and the general public can have a look at it and assess it. Um, and then it, it goes to formal publication when people review it and it's peer-reviewed. So I have the document here in front of me, and uh, it has a very innocent and very um, neutral-sounding name of a measurement of the neutrino velocity with the opera detector in the CNGS beam. So it um, doesn't really say much there. But essentially there's an experiment in CERN in Geneva called the opera experiment. And the opera experiment's job is to study these elusive particles called neutrinos. Now, what a neutrino is, it's a particle that was whose existence was predicted in the 1930s, and it just, it, it's associated with, um, with nuclear reactions and, and uh, high-energy processes of the kind you find in the sun. And um, mm-hmm. actually, the sun, the sun produces so much of them that we get about 65 billion of them um, through every square centimetre of our bodies every second from the sun. So, oh, so there's, there's, a so lot there's of no avoiding them anyway. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. So essentially what happened is this. The, the, the scientists did an experiment. They, um, they basically made a beam of neutrinos. And uh, they, they used um, a, a number of the processes they have. They have these huge machines in CERN that can make beams. So what basically CERN did is it generated a beam of neutrinos and shot it at a laboratory uh, in the middle of Italy. So it shot at 730 kilometers through the Earth itself. So um, the way they did it is they had a huge particle accelerator. They hammered particles called protons that are in your body, that are about several kilos of your body weight, uh, into uh, graphite, which is what pencils are made of. But when you do that uh, in a particular way, you're able to generate these elusive particles. Now, the key to all of this is when the scientists measured the speed um, they, they, they essentially measured the time that it took the neutrinos to get from CERN to um, the Laboratory Nazionale del Gran Sasso in central Italy, 730 kilometers away. And they found when they looked at the overall speed, 
that the neutrinos traveled faster than the speed of light. Now, a fraction faster, only one part in 40,000 faster, but nonetheless faster. So um, even the guys in CERN did not expect this. They, they, they had a press conference the other day, and uh, their spokesman called Antonio Rodato said, uh, look, we don't know what happened. Uh, we're inviting the broader physics community. Look at what we've done. Really look at it. Uh, we published a 24-page paper. Really look at what we did. We don't know where we've missed it, but we we appear to have broken this holy grail. Now, and does, do you start, the scientists at CERN think they've made a mistake then? They can't quite believe it themselves. I, they can't quite believe themselves. It's, it's as simple as that. Um, their gut feeling is telling them, look, this is impossible. Um, now, I, I think to most people, most people don't realise why there's much that much fuss. Um, but these people almost, the, 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 the scientists in CERN almost don't want to believe their own results because it would be the biggest game changer in physics in 100 years. And, and, and maybe I could just describe why. Um, just over 100 years ago, Albert Einstein came up with his famous theory of relativity. Now, mm-hmm. it's one of the most proven theories in the whole of physics. Um, it is... It, it, it says a number of things, but one of the things it really it says a number of simple things. But one of the simple fundamental aspects of it is that there is a speed. Uh, that light has a speed, and nothing can travel faster than light. Now, light is very, very fast. Um, in one second, light travels three hundred thousand kilometers. So it, it's really, really fast. And uh, it was believed that nothing can travel faster. Um, and if things do travel faster, very very, very weird things happen. And it basically turns the whole of physics for the last 100 years on its head. So now, what, what would happen if... What yeah, I was just going to ask you, what, what what would happen if a physical body could travel faster than the speed of light? What does that mean? Well, lots of things. And um, <laughs> First thing, in, in order to travel faster than the speed of light, um, according to all the most solid basic physics that you're taught um, in college and that is used... To, to do everything from make nuclear reactions in power stations to to uh, to make the GPS system that goes around the world the world work and so it's, the, the, the theory of relativity is proved every single day several thousand times a second. But according to that, you need an infinite amount of energy to go faster than light. So if something is going mm. faster than light. Something funny is going on. It means it's somehow got an infinite amount of energy. Worse than that, if things go faster than light, then things can go back in time. Back in Objects time. could travel back in time. Right. And uh, that would cause obvious problems because there's a, a principle in physics called causality upon which the whole amount of physics is built. And put quite simply, causality is just the idea that um, a cause precedes effect. You cause something to happen, then mm-hmm. the thing happens. If things can travel faster than light under current theories, then that goes out the window. It means that... Um, cause something to happen and then it happens before you've caused it. Wow. Uh, which, uh, which is pretty crazy. It's quite hard to get your head around. <laughs> it, it is because it, the, the whole reason it's hard to get our heads around is, is, is our intuition tells us that, um, you know, time well, is, time is linear, forward. isn't it? So it shouldn't go back and forward in circles and things. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So an, another thing that goes out the window is this, um, this famous equation from Einstein, that the one famous equation in physics, E equals mc squared. Um, to a great degree, that goes out the window because the, the principles upon which that's built um, are based on uh, speed of light being a uh, speed limit, a uh, particular speed limit. But now that doesn't appear to apply. Um, all the theory, 
underlying uh, particle physics and how all these high energy particles work. That goes up, you know. But again, there's there's an even weirder uh, possibility. Some people there's an area of physics called string theory, and it. I was just about to ask you about that, and would yeah. would could we tie that? Could we tie those strings up with um, the with the theory of relativity? Sorry, that was um, cheesy. Don't mind that. <laughs> but yeah, could, does that mean the gap between um, string theory and the theory of relativity could be closed with this observation, or is that just too much to hope for? It's it's it, it's a, it, it's. It's new territory. Like I said, this is, is a total game changer. I'll just tell you how different string theory and uh, relativity are. Um, if you compare the whole size of the universe to the size of an atom, right? That's that's a huge difference in scale, and um, and that's you, you can do relativity on, on those scales. If you take that same scale and you go from the atom down, then you're into string theory. Well, strings are these ultra, ultra, ultra tiny. Um, structures, notions, ideas, and um, and they don't behave in the way that we can um, that we could imagine anything physically behaves at our atomic exactly. level. They, so they're just they're just utterly counterintuitive. And one of the strange things about uh, string theory is string theory uh, posits the existence of extra dimensions. And when I say that, I am seriously in Star Trek and Doctor Who territory. You certainly are. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is crazy stuff, and uh, but essentially, uh, there's a physicist called Lisa Randall, who's a professor of physics in, in New York, uh, and I contacted her over the weekend and on this, and some of her theories suggest that there are these extra dimensions, and uh, one of the theories is that these, these neutrinos that we're seeing in CERN um, didn't necessarily go faster than the speed of light, um, but... They didn't go faster than the speed of light through higher dimensions, so they took a shortcut through higher dimensions. So they arrived earlier because of that. So, so what you're saying is they're behaving according to Albert Einstein would have predicted if he knew that there was other dimensions that they could have short circuited through. Yes, that's one of <laughs> that's one of the possibilities. Wow. But again, it's, it's it's a very very fertile field. Now I have to take you back to to one other point. The 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 thing is, is most of the physics community is that even the guys who have made this measurement don't believe it, and they're asking yeah. people to repeat the experiment. So there's going to be this, there's an experiment in in uh, Japan called the the T2K experiment where they're going to try it. There was an experiment in in Fermilab in the US uh, called the Minos experiment where they thought they saw something like this in 2007, but basically didn't believe their own data and they didn't have enough data. And uh, so. You know, speaking as someone who's, who's designed a lot of uh, electronics and instruments and timing myself, um, when you see a result like that, that uh, challenges the fundamentals of physics, you're probably wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one other thing that people have done uh, as a counter-argument against this is they've said that there was a... This just shows you how physics is, is, is all interrelated. There was a supernova in, in 1987 um, in, in a nearby galaxy, basically. And um, it was 168 thousand light years away from the Earth, really, really far away. And astronomers looking at it saw light and neutrinos um, arriving from the supernova. And when they measured them, they basically came at the same time. So even these experiments suggest that you measure massive amounts of neutrinos and light, they travel at the same speed. But for this, this experiment would be the ultimate game changer. Um, It would suggest, uh, all the things I've suggested um, to you there so far are on the table. Um, there might be some other theories that say neutrinos are these special particles 
um, that can go faster than, than light. Um, there are other theories that say um, there's these things called tachyons, and these are particles that can never go slower than light. Um, so they never cross the light barrier. They can never go slower than light. So it, it puts so much on the table. This is why everybody is watching it really, really careful, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing it myself. So essentially, these guys have uh, put this paper on the web. They've uh, asked they've actually genuinely asked everyone to try and tear the results apart and find a hole in it because they can't. They said they've spent a long time trying to figure out a hole in, in what they've done, how they measured their timings and everything. And they really, really don't know where to turn or what so to So they, they hope they've made a mistake in calculations, but they cannot possibly see where. Well, on, on the one hand, they hope that they've missed something. And um, from the point of view of experimental physics, physics yeah. they, uh, you know, <laughs> otherwise they have a whole lot of explaining to do. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I think it's, it's very good for the general public to see that this is how science is done. People take the data, uh, people make their measurements, people explain how they got the measurements, then they put them on, table, on the table in front of the world and say, look guys, try and break it for us. Um, we're not sure, we can't spot um, where we've made a mistake, maybe you can. And it's wonderful to see that that's how science works. I mean, uh, a person like me or anyone member of the general public can actually download this um, document it's, it's readable um if you have some technical background and uh, all the scientists in the world have access to it and can challenge it and uh that's a really really powerful thing about science that you can do that uh, on the other hand uh, I, I wouldn't say that they necessarily hope they've made a mistake because if it <laughs> yeah. turns out they haven't they get, there's a nobel prize in it and that's, uh, that's a nice thing to yeah. have on, on the mantelpiece absolutely and if you're interested in learning more about theoretical physics, we recommend reading The Grand Design by Stephen Hawking. It's a straight-talking tour of the universe that explains multiple dimensions, the Big Bang Theory and quantum mechanics. Now we switch from particles to waves with our next interview on more down-to-earth phenomena. Professor Frederick Dias from the University College Dublin explains how his research used optics to create in the lab the rare rogue wave, once thought to be the stuff of maritime folklore. He also talks about his team's unique research into predicting how tsunami waves travel when they reach land. The problem is that it's very difficult to uh, observe these waves and to study them, study them in the ocean. The main reason being that uh, they are very localised both in space and in time. Localizing space means that they will occur over a small area of typically one kilometer square. So it means that if you are on a boat and then a friend of yours is uh, five kilometers behind you, you experience a rogue wave, most likely your friend will not experience it. Same thing, uh, you're, it's very localized in time, typically over a minute, so you will be at the wrong location at the wrong time, you will experience the freak wave if someone is behind you and goes exactly to the same place, but five minutes later, most likely you will not experience So the, rogue waves would have accounted wave. for ships that have that have gone down in the sea and nobody knows why could they possibly yes. have been one explanation? Yes, so uh, there are incidents and uh, you know typically we say uh, one or two incidents a year in the average due yeah. to these kind of waves. The, so now I'm um, working with uh, people in optics because people also discovered rogue waves in uh, lasers. So light waves are actually related to waves in the sea when it comes to rogue waves? Yes, because they share oh. the same characteristics. So we need some ingredients to be able to observe rogue waves and these ingredients are present both in ocean waves and in uh, optical waves. So the advantage of... Um, 
optics is that you can perform experiments in a small uh, amount of space. So and you don't have to sit cool. out on a boat waiting for a rogue wave yes, to happen. Yes, you don't have to, yeah, to wait for ages and you can repeat the uh, same experiments over and over. And so then you can, even though it's a rare event, you can hope to uh, observe it much more efficiently in optics than in the uh, ocean. And what, is, what have you and your research team found out about rogue waves? What exactly have you been working on? So what we found is the first observation in optics of a special kind of wave which has been described earlier as a very good candidate for a rogue wave. So why? It's uh, very simple in terms of uh, mathematics, a simple uh, expression, and it describes a wave which is very uh, localized both in space and in time. So the mathematical object already existed, but it had never been observed in so nature. So it's not inexplicable then? It's, does that mean that it's predictable? If, it's a, if you can express it mathematically, does that mean you can predict the rogue wave? Well, it means that we know which conditions will create this wave. Now, the big question is, can these conditions occur in the ocean? So oh, we know okay. from a mathematical point of view what, are the, what the ingredients are to produce this solution. And that's why we were able to do it uh, together with people in optics, because we know what is going to create this wave. And in optics, it's relatively easy to produce mm -hmm. uh, the uh, proper yeah. conditions to create the wave. I have to say that, so this was our work a year ago, Mm -hmm. And then after that, a team in Germany, in a tank, in a yeah. wave tank, managed to reproduce the same type of wave. So this was well, the that's first. great. That's reinforcing. Yes. It, so, yeah. But one thing to realize is that this wave in the wave tank, yeah. so with water, not in uh, optics, is only a two centimeter wave. Oh. So, <laughs> that so it was a two that's not going to tip a board over. <laughs> no, but it's a two centimeter wave, and it reached an amplitude up to six centimeters and usually we describe a rogue wave as a wave for which the ratio between the uh, the height of the wave and what we call the significant wave height i will describe it later is more than two and so in that particular experiment six centimeter divided by two that was three so it was above two and that was uh, so confirmed yeah. yes so uh, introduced significant wave height that's um the height of the uh, largest one-third of the waves at a given time in the ocean. And most recently, you've been working on tsunamis. And what, what's the difference between a tsunami and a freak wave, or just a big giant wave anyway? Is, is it scientifically different? Yes, they are completely different. Of course, both can be destructive, but they are completely different phenomena in ocean waves. The, uh, the freak wave is something which is very, uh, as I described, very localized, both in space and in time. And then the tsunami is something which is very uh, long in time. It has a period of typically 15 minutes. A rogue wave has a period of a few seconds, so completely different scales. Mm -hmm. And then the tsunami is going to propagate over thousands of kilometers why the rogue wave would just appear somewhere and disappear almost uh, immediately. So completely different uh, types of waves, 
I didn't describe what can create a rogue wave, so I'm mm -hmm. coming back to this now, and then I will yeah. explain what can create a tsunami. But for a rogue wave, there are essentially four or five mechanisms that people agree on. One is what we call the uh, directional focusing of waves, which means that if you have waves coming from different directions and they arrive at the same point together, then if some conditions are satisfied, they can pile up and create a big wave. Another possibility is what we call dispersive focusing, because small waves do not go as fast as long waves. So if you have some waves in the ocean, which are short waves, then they go relatively slowly, and if you have some uh, long waves behind, which go uh, faster, then they can catch up with the small waves and then again accumulate and create a big wave. The other possibility is if you have waves in the ocean with a current going in the opposite direction. So the current in some sense can enhance the wave and create a monster wave. The, third, the fourth possibility is what we call bathymetry focusing. So what's the bathymetry? The bathymetry is essentially the uh, topography of the ocean. So the, uh, how the shape of the sea bottom. So when the uh, water depth diminishes, mm -hmm. then this amplifies water waves. And so you can get some focusing of energy that way. And this is what is behind uh, surfing. Uh, people look for nice waves, and usually they are produced by um, bathymetry focusing. And to, so to finish on the rogue waves, the uh, mechanism that actually is the same in optics and in ocean waves that I haven't described because it's the most difficult to explain, especially in uh, simple terms. Mm. It's based on an instability. So waves sometimes cannot propagate just smoothly without changing shape. So they can be uh, subject to some instabilities. So just a little bit of perturbation can create some, a little bit of noise can create a big amplification mm, of the okay. wave, and that's what's, what's happening. Now for the tsunamis, the main mechanism is an underwater earthquake that will deform the bottom of the ocean, and then this deformation will be uh, transmitted to the uh, surface of the ocean. And because the uh, surface of the ocean is deformed, waves uh, form yep. and start to propagate, and how strong they will be. And your research into tsunamis, what exactly are you looking at at the moment? So we are looking at the, uh, the other end of the tsunami, not the generation. What is not very well understood is the uh, final stage, when the tsunami is going to invade the, uh, the ground. And so we've been looking at one aspect of this, which is why, in several cases, it was not the first tsunami wave that was the most devastating, but maybe the second, the third, or fourth. And that's one thing to remember, a tsunami is not a single wave, it's a train of waves. Even though in the ocean there is usually one leading wave and then a small train of waves behind, when they come to shore, then the uh, second wave, the third wave, can be as big as the, uh, the first one, or even bigger. So this is very important in terms of uh, warning, that people should be aware that if a first wave has come, it's not safe to go back to where you were. So after the first wave, keep running. <laughs> yes, keep running and really wait, at least wait for two hours before going back to, uh, to the shore. 
we wanted to understand why, in some cases, for example, it's the third wave that was the most devastating, and we found sub, some type of resonance. Now, resonance between what? Between the uh, frequency of the period of the uh, incoming wave, between the slope of the uh, sea bottom, and in some cases, the tsunami is going to be amplified by this uh, resonance. So it's like a, a swing. If you push at the right time, then you will increase the emotion of the swing. Finally, before we check out the upcoming events, Gerard explores the life of famous Irish scientist John Tyndall as he visits his birthplace in Lachlan Bridge, County Carlow. Lachlan's Bridge is a small town in County Carlow. Very small, in fact. It would be quite easy to pass through it and hardly realise that you'd been there if you weren't paying attention. And it's also the birthplace of John Tyndall. Tyndall was born in 1820. He obtained a PhD in Marlborough University in Germany, where he studied chemistry under Robert Bunsen, the inventor of the Bunsen burner. And in 1853, he was offered the Chair of Natural Philosophy in the Royal Institution of London, succeeding Michael Faraday as its director in 1867. Faraday is known as the father of electricity. John Tyndall, according to the popular version, is famous for answering the question, why is the sky blue? The Tyndall effect, which he discovered, also known as Tyndall scattering, is caused by light scattered by particles in a fine suspension. The result is longer wavelengths get through while shorter wavelengths are blocked. And since different colours of light have different wavelengths, the scattered blue light spreads all over the sky and the sky appears blue. Tyndall's work in the atmosphere didn't end there. He also discovered that the heat in the Earth's atmosphere is determined by the capacities of various gases to absorb radiant heat or infrared radiation. At the time, of course, he didn't know it was called infrared radiation. He called it dark heat. Tyndall's work meant that he was the first person who was able to prove that there was a greenhouse effect in the Earth's atmosphere, keeping this planet warm. Something that's become relevant again as global warming and climate change become issues. In the 19th century, specialisations tended to cross over much more easily than they do today. As part of his work, Tyndall needed to create an atmosphere that was pure, without any dust or particles. But one of the side effects of this was that he discovered, having left one of his bottles and then gone back to it, that there were new particles in it, germs. This led to the discovery that pasteurisation, then a new process, wasn't always 100% effective. Pasteurization will destroy bacteria, but bacteria in spore form can survive. Tyndallization was born as a result, another way to sterilise products. So from Lachlan Bridge, you had discoveries in light, atmosphere, global warming and climate change, food safety, all from one man, and he did a lot more than that. Over a 35-year career between 1850 and 1884, John Tyndall published 147 papers, an average of four a year. So the next time you're passing through Carlow, consider stopping in Lachlan's Bridge and realise that out of small beginnings, anything is possible.
Trina O'Connell is here in the studio with the lowdown on science events around Ireland. So what's happening in the next few weeks, Trina? Oh, there's plenty more science to be doing in October. So Thursday, October 6th is National Tree Day. Kilmacurra Botanic Gardens in Wicklow will be running a guided walk from half two, exploring the wonderful trees in their arboretum. So visit botanicgardens.ie for more details. First Fridays at Blackrock Castle Observatory explore 50 years of human spaceflight this month. The evening will incorporate workshops, the Cork Science Cafe and a lecture on exploratory space missions and fascinating spacecraft. Starting from 6pm on Friday the 7th of October, this event promises much thrilling science. Visit bco.ie for more information. Astronomy Ireland's annual evening classes commence all around the country on the week of October 13th. If you'd like to learn more about astronomy, cosmology and how astronomy has been studied historically, this is the class for you. Classes run for eight weeks and cost €180 for non-members and €200 for the parent and child package. For more details on the locations and classes, visit astronomy.ie. Maths Week is running from the 15th to 22nd of October, so there will be loads of events on all over the country. There's the annual Hamilton Walk from Dunsink Observatory along the canal, retracing Hamilton's inventions of quaternions, some maths magic in Waterford IT, and Matt Parker is touring the universities in Ulster with his Maths of the Simpsons tour. Check out mathsweek.ie to find out what's happening near you. And because we love weeks in Ireland, Science Week will be running between the 13th and 20th of November. Now, it's advance notice because we'd like you to let them know what you're planning on running. So if there's anything you'd like to know, let the organisers know so they can publicise it in their diary. And registration of events continues until October 16th on scienceweek.ie. Excellent. Thanks for that, Trina. And remember, you can download all of our podcasts through cybernia.ie and keep up with Cybernia News through twitter.com forward slash Cybernia and facebook.com forward slash Cybernia. And we'd like to thank all of our Cybernia contributors and our producer, Gavin Byrne. And thank you for listening to the Cybernia Science Podcast. 